1: Music lovers and welcome to Modern Musicology. We are glad to have you aboard. My name is Alan and with me is Rob Levy. Hey, what's up? Anthony Williams. Howdy. And Stephanie Seymour. Hi, people. Tonight we are doing another one of our anniversary shows. We are talking about the amazing year 1988 and the incredible albums that came out that year. We're going to be doing this as a two-parter, just like we did 1983, because holy cow, there's so much stuff to talk about. So we're going to be getting to all of that. We're going to do half the year for this episode. Before we jump into that, though, I just have a couple of little things to talk about in listener feedback. The first one is about our Wham! episode. When we reviewed the Wham! documentary, Sharon Con Campbell says, quote, Amazing how little of an ego Andrew had. He obviously recognized his best mate's incredible talent and knew that in order for George to truly soar, he had to step aside. He seemed to appreciate experiencing the four-year meteoric rise of Wham! with his best mate, but he knew he couldn't take the project further. To be this humble and aware at 23 years old is even more astounding. What a special human.
0: That's my buddy Sharon. (laughs) Oh yeah? yeah oh very cool
1: yeah and i think that was kind of the consensus of all of us when we talked about that documentary is that that really opened our eyes to a lot about andrew the second thing i've got is from our good friend bill lamond and he decided to email us with his he he has an idea about desert island discs so here's what he has to say Just a quick note about my own ideas of Desert Island Discs. Being on a desert island with no company, I wouldn't want to be reminded of my isolation, so I would want to continue a childhood theme back when I was fairly isolated at home, when I was something of an only child until my first brother was born when I was four and a half years old. I love music enough, but for the last 24 years, my remedy for keeping my clinical depression at bay has been I could be listening to something funny instead. So I go back to when I was a little kid before we had a TV, which wasn't until I was about seven or eight years old. My dad had brought back a telefunken tube stereo from Germany when he was in the U S air force. So he lists three discs. The first one He says, among the LPs that we had were Stan Freeberg's United States of America, which is primarily a very funny musical look at U.S. history from early colony days through the revolution. Number two, decades later, I learned that Freeberg had created a sequel album. And number three, also from my childhood, is a disc by Danish musician and comedian Victor Borga, about anthropomorphic musical instruments getting together to make music. That's all. Gotta get back to Saturday decluttering. Thanks for always being good company and helping me get through my otherwise way too boring job. Well, Bill, thank you so much for emailing and we will always try to be good company for you and for all of our other listeners. And that reminds me that last year you mentioned something about Novelty Records, and uh, we said that we had been thinking about doing a show about Novelty Records and that we would add it to the schedule, and we never did. So I'm going to put it on the schedule, and we're going to get that episode for you as quickly as we can. We've got a few things already on the schedule coming up for like the next month or so, but we're going to get to that as soon as we can. So I promise you a Novelty Records episode soon. Woohoo! Woohoo! All right. Let's jump into the year 1988. What a year. Who wants to start us off with just talking about the year in general, just like general impressions of kind of the things that were going on that year? I will. Okay, do it.
0: I just I mean, for me this was a year of so much diversity. Kind of it was kind of like like 83 in that way where just you know everything there was so many things going on, but I feel like this was hip hop at its finest. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, you know, all a lot of records I'm going to be talking about are are hip hop albums that came out this year. I mean, there was amazing albums from like BDP, Salt and Pepper, Eric B and Rakim, Salt and Peppa, I should say. And right. uh, <laughs> but I, I'm going to focus on other other albums by like Public Enemy and statisonic But they' they called it the. When you look it up in Wikipedia, all these albums are called. The, the the genre is the golden age of hip-hop and really the ain't kidding. It is the best year, I think, for hip-hop albums. Well, it's my favorite year, at least, for the releases. And at this time, I mean, I was working at Island Records and we also had subsidiary hip-hop labels like 4th and Broadway and Delicious Vinyl, and there's just so much going on. And there was an awesome scene, like an awesome New York club scene, Hotel Amazon, Payday, where you would just go and hear all the new up-and-coming sounds and music just it was really just like the place to be so i feel like it was a good focus on that but there i was also working at like i said at island and we had some massive albums this year from like youtube you know rattle and hum the pogues melissa etheridge debut anthrax tom waits julian cope I mean, it was just a really amazing diverse and fun year and a great time in my life
2: and Stephanie, you noted it as being part of the golden age of hip hop. I think it's also notable in that um, from a metal perspective, yes. all four of the big four yeah. of mm. thrash put out albums. And then you also have two of what's, in my opinion, are, are some of the greatest progressive metal albums in Maiden's Seventh Son and Queen's Rite's Operation Mindcrime. crime yes. we'll come back to those later. Okay. Yeah. Yes, agreed. Yeah,
3: and it's interesting too because you also have kind of growing with the thrash metal thing is the industrial music scene that would end up bleeding into the 90s because you've got two frontline assembly records. You've got the first um, KMFDM record. You've got a ministry record and Skinny Puppy. Yeah. Um, so you're starting to get that type of stuff coming along as well. And it's also the very beginning of what would be the summer of love with the Hacienda and the Manchester stuff. You're getting a couple of those records coming to set up for that. So it really is setting up this amazing melting pot for American music, hmm. um, for music that are coming over here and getting played. And it's also, I also think, the golden age of uh, college radio. Oh yeah, um, Totally. Just because the next three years before commercial, commercial alternative radio broke, there's just so many great records that are getting played. And college radio is kind of at the forefront of all that.
0: And this this might be the year before we met, Rob, but this is how we met. I was promoting records to College Radio, and you were- No, this
3: is, I was just about to say, this is, this the, is year the year we met. Yeah. Because you got me on the guest list for the Pogues. Oh, the Pogues, yeah. And then you sent me a vinyl copy of Rattle and Hum with a note on it that says, I promise it's not all terrible. <laughs> um, I did?
0: Because I love yes. this record, and I'm going to talk about no, it. No, <laughs> because I
3: was, I was, a, I was, because um, we talked about the movie, and I was talking oh. about just- how, their, how Bono's ego was just going.
2: Since you two met this year, I'm going to make you both feel old. Um <laughs> you were born. I was born in the middle of November 1987, and and so come January 88, I was a month and a half. And that's uh,
3: when you heard Injustice for All.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I don't think Injustice for All came out till later in the year, so maybe I was a year oh, old when I heard okay. it, Rob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's the first thing that came to my head. <laughs> and the first thing I did at that age was complain that the bass was mixed too low. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Already, he had that connoisseur first words ear. words out of my mouth.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think that even more than 83, 88 is a, is a year that's like nothing but identity crisis. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that there isn't like a particular style or genre that you can really pin down as being sort of like iconic for that year. I feel like everything is going on and with it coming so late in the decade, you're at a point where all the things that are going to be notable in the 90s are starting to happen. So you you it's sort of like a transitional year, not mm-hmm. like 89 is going to be, but I think that it's you know, you see it's on the cusp of that big transition into a lot of the things that's going to happen in the nineties. So that's a
0: good point. Like even within genres, there was so much diversity. So that's something I was going to talk about too in hip hop.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. So I want to start us off. Um, we're recording this on July 30th and just a couple of days ago, we got the news that Sinead O'Connor had passed away very sadly. And, um, I know that that's, you know, a little bit off, topic for us because her first album came out in 1987 but it came out right at the end of 87 so pretty much all of the radio traffic and the video play that she got was primarily in 1988 and i feel like she's such a presence in 1988 that i want to start us off by talking a little bit about her and about that first album which came out uh toward the end of november of 87 lion and the cobra what a
3: phenomenal album so who wants to kick us off Mandinka kind of was the lead single 87 at late 87 ish. It comes on the first time I heard or saw it was on 120 minutes. And you're like, who is this? What is this? The body does not match the voice, yep. which I thought instantly was fantastic. Then I was like, okay, I like this. This is kind of cool. You know, it's I'm, 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 I'm down with it. Uh, she released a 12 inch, I think in March, I want your hands on me that she had MC light do a, like an interstitial rap break on. And at that point I'm like, okay, wait a minute, what's going on? Because then she's getting club play, right? That I want your hands on me. It was like breaking in clubs. And from that point on it took off. I just remember being struck by the presence and the voice because they weren't necessarily matched in the way that you would think. Um, I also was very happy to have, female vocalist who was intelligent and articulate and it was also very um kind of a mystery too because you still didn't really know what she was about and who she was and things like that right she didn't do a ton of interviews still she was not really a press person and she still looked even till the end of 88 really uncomfortable talking to media that's kind of my first impressions of it and that first record is just a table set kind of
0: yeah
3: i
2: think
0: she was a And around the New York scene, hanging out and playing, and I think even maybe working at Chene, which is where I was playing a lot at that time. You know, playing a lot of music and stuff. Um, but I didn't really ever know her or know. You know, I, I just. I, it's it's funny because when she really broke with this first album, or well, well, when I saw Mandinka, like you said, Rob, probably on one twenty minutes, I was just blown away. I, I also felt the same thing about the voice and you look at that beautiful angelic face and then this fierce, passionate voice came out of her. Um I feel like one thing about her that I just want to say is I feel like you could always feel her pain. It's yeah. just something that just emanated out of her and it, it was sad and but it was also really powerful and you know, she she had pain and anger. And she, she wasn't really afraid to let anybody see that.
1: Mm-hmm. I I think that um, Mandinka was also my first exposure to her from 120 minutes. And I immediately loved it. I was working at uh, the record store at the time, Specs Music in Winter Haven, Florida. I, you know, I had access to hear whatever I wanted to hear. And I was curious about this album. So I cracked it open and... I just fell in love with it. I mean, it is a remarkable piece of music. In addition to Mandinka, there's Jerusalem, which I think is amazing. Uh, Hmm. Drink before the war. Um, Rob, you mentioned I Want Your Hands on Me, which, uh, if I remember rightly, got used in the upcoming Freddy Krueger movie, Nightmare on Elm Street.
3: Oh, really? Um, Oh, wow.
1: And, but I think that the masterpiece on that album is Troy. Oh my God! Yeah. Just such an such amazing and powerful song. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's we're we're very sorry to have seen Shinee. I mean, she she just had a troubled life, you know, just went yeah, through so much shit and and caught
0: such shit for yeah. for speaking the truth. And you know, yeah, all all the things she was all the things she said were true and yet she was labeled crazy and she paid such a price for that. Yeah, uh, Right. Uh, it was just, a, it was just a supreme in- injustice. Yep.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think the, you know, the whole world owes, owes her an apology. And one of the things we learned very quickly with her is that stereotypes and labeling in music don't work because up until this time they could easily put a lot of alternative artists in a box or check a box. Yeah. And her crossover appeal is pretty phenomenal, right? Um there is a traction made on her uh with Terry Hall from the specials uh called All Kinds of Everything, right? She um and one of the things I really like about it is when you see the video for it, she's smiling and she's kind of giggling. And there's a couple times um when you see some of her other collaborat- collabor collaboration stuff like what she's with massive attack and stuff you just kind of see this like smiling sort of like warmth coming out of her that is like it's kind of jarring because you're not used to seeing it mm-hmm. but like when you watch the the video for the terry hall thing she's actually like you know got a got a, like a really coy smile and at one point there's like a full-on laugh and it's just like it's like Oh, wow. You know, so I like to think of her as having that sense of, you know, laughter. I remember um, the two times I saw her um, because I saw her in a small club and I saw her on Lollapalooza. And when I saw her at Lollapalooza, there was some issue with technical stuff. And I remember she was talking to the sound people trying to fix it. And she made a joke. And I heard her laugh. And it was like, but I remember the a bunch of us who were sitting there were kinda of like, wait a minute, did she just laugh? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, because she had that persona that was so um intense ingrained. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with being an intense performer. I think it's great, but I think that she had a label that didn't know how to handle it. At the time I remember the, the college radio people just didn't know how to work the record. They just weren't sure what to do with it. And it wasn't really until nothing compares to that they kind of got on board the train you know chrysalis just didn't really know how to work this and i i think they put the record out thinking this is going to sell a small amount of units or whatever and then it just took off like the critics loved it and i think from there it was just kind of like we don't know what to do and then the media didn't know what to do with her you look at some of the other female artists at the time she's not madonna she's not the woman from transvision vamp who's flaunting everything Wendy
0: james Right. Wendy
3: James, yeah. So she is by contrast to the to the the women of the time a punch in the face, so to speak, right? It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And she's very punk rock, you know, in a way that's not punk rock, but oh, she Lord. kind of took everything from, you know, that sort of Dublin gritty street back environment and put it into her music. And I don't think we give her credit for being a lyricist. I know we talked about the voice, but like you listen to like three babies. Or uh, I'm stretched under grave, or Troy, or even Jerusalem, right? Or later on, famine. You just don't really realize just how great of a lyricist she is until you read it. It's um, it's really interesting what a great lyricist she is, and her version of Silent Night that she does is one of the few holiday album song things that gives me chills because it's just her with like very low modulation behind her. And it's mostly the voice and it is eerie and it's amazing at the same time. All right. Well, let's just jump into
1: 1988 proper. Who's got something from January that they want to throw
2: at us? I have something from right at the beginning of January. So January 4th, Marillion released a compilation of their B-sides besides themselves, which is fantastic they had some very very strong b-sides early on in their career and so while this none of this was new music uh, a lot of it it was the first time it was available on compact disc Uh, even today as they've done their remasters of their studio albums they still haven't done anything with these b-sides so this is one of the few places you can get them, and you can you can kind of get them as non remastered tracks on kind of the DVDs that come with their their remastered albums. But they're fantastic; they're a lot of fun. Uh, whether it's Grendel, which the band kind of roll their eyes at today, uh, <laughs> Three Boats Down from the Candy, which I think is a fantastic track, Cinderella Search, which has an amazing last minute and a half that rocks really hard. And my personal favorite is Tux On, which was the last B-side they did with Fish before he left the band. It's just such a great little compilation and uh, kind of a, a nice way for them to end the era with their first singer.
0: Rob, I know you want to talk
2: about the folks. <laughs> uh, I, I've got a couple for, for this month, but...
0: well. But I just want to say that I think this is how we basically met, right? Maybe I sent this album to you, and this might have been the first one. I
3: was only the assistant music director. Okay. I I wasn't important yet. Well, you Um, you were
0: important to me, but...
3: (laughs) I just remember really wanting to go to the show. Yeah. um, And not really knowing what to expect. And then um, just being absolutely floored. Uh, The venue they played here had probably more square foot space than members of the band
0: because <laughs> um, it was
3: also the first time i'd ever i'd seen bands drink but my god oh my i've god. never seen a band drink except maybe the replacements i've never seen a band drink that much on stage in my life it's pretty yeah. amazing so um, i
0: this was a great album if it's called if i should fall from grace with god and yeah. I just have to say that this was the only album that I got to the number one position of the CMJ charts and when I was at Island. It was one of my greater achievements, yeah. I think. But um, <laughs> this was such a wonderful album. And uh, Fairy Tale of New York, you know, I think that's probably the, it, obviously this album is known for Fairy Tale of New York, but yeah. um, there are so many good songs on it and it's just yeah. <sighs> It's
3: it does a lot. Thousands are sailing yeah. encapsulates yes. the Irish American immigration experience. You've got Fiesta, which is oh. great. You've got If I Should Offer Grace with God, the mm-hmm. title track. You've got Bottles of Smoke. um I think you've got Broad, Majestic Shannon on that one. No. I'll have to check. I don't know. Maybe not.
0: Oh no, you're right. It's a it. Yep. Yeah. 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 You're right.
3: And it's just it's it's pretty relentless too. I mean. For never never really hearing, at that point in my life, a lot of Irish music that wasn't um, a little less hard and in your face.
0: Yeah. They were very brash.
3: I mean, we didn't have the Dropkick Murphys then. Yeah. And you didn't have, you know, the five other bands that sound like them all around. You had just them. Yeah. And it was a novelty. They're like, they play Irish punk music. Good times. (laughs) Pretty incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the first time you play the record, you're like, okay, there's a lot of songs on here to work with. So, different DJs who like different types of music could all find something they like.
0: Yeah. What else do you have for January?
3: Um, so, I have one that probably I care about more than, than most people. Uh, you have the very first uh, Creation Records uh, version of The House of Love, The House of Love. Uh, they named every album pretty much The House of Love, which is mm-hmm. amazingly annoying. But the one uh, that they did for Creation, it's got Christine on it and um, Happy and some other things on it. It's just. From start to finish, a really good, well-produced record. Christine also really broke over here because of 120 minutes, mm-hmm. but that record really took off. Their first two or three albums were really, really. You say
0: best. I don't care about them, but you do. Do you know that we played with them? And and actually, Chris put our um, Aquanetta's albums out, our singles out, over in the UK on his label.
3: See, I thought you toured with them, but I wasn't sure. About anything else,
0: we played with them a few times over there. But yeah, we were on Chris's. He Chris had a label called Plastic Records, and he put some Aquanetta singles out in the UK for us. Nice. Yeah,
3: there you go. They were great. They were great. But they're one of those bands that you know, and sort of the precursors of Britpop, kind of in a way. And then also Galaxy Five Hundred today, which was really took off Rough Trade Records in America as a label, and really put Dean Wareham on the map as being a songwriter and um the guy kind of on this record at times sounds like kermit the frog mm-hmm. but the melodies and the strings are, it's very hauntingly beautiful like it's just it's it's a, it's a really really sublime debut record so i just want to throw that into.
1: then i guess that's going to bring us into february and i've got I've got a couple of things um, that are kind of notable in February. Uh, the first one is Ace Frehley had left Kiss a few, quite a few years earlier and was doing his own thing now under the name Frehley's Comet. They put out their, basically their second album. It was a, sort of an EP. It was called Live Plus One, and it was four live tracks from their first tour plus one new studio track, and that new studio track was fantastic. It's probably my favorite Frehley's Comet. Uh, song. And later on in the year, um, I think in, in May, they put out their second album. And by that point, Ace was so trashed and so strung out that he like barely could make it to the studio. So their rhythm guitar player and secondary lead singer, Todd Howarth, took more of the front line and was really carrying the load on that album so it's called fraley's comet but it's really howarth's comet
2: oh, and wow. i just think it's
1: so interesting that to watch his deterioration at this point where he's just so buried under his own addictions that mm-hmm. he can't even function enough to record his second album wow so I yeah that. that's crazy hmm. the the other thing this is a really interesting story uh at toward the end of february We have, there's this new band and they were kept very secret. Nobody would say who they were, who the members were. They just put the song out and they let fans and radio stations speculate. And for, I don't know, a month or more, they were playing this song and it had a very Led Zeppelin vibe to it. And the listeners went absolutely ballistic thinking holy cow this is a reformed led zeppelin this is a new led zeppelin song this is a you know like led zeppelin is making a new project or something and it ended up being a band called kingdom come yeah. had zero to do with led zeppelin other than the singer kind of had that robert plant kind of quality to his voice you know and they had sort of that dark edge to their music i loved that first album I did too it was so good um and i wasn't disappointed that they weren't led zeppelin because it was still a great album now building up that mystique and then not having it deliver on what everyone expected it was going to deliver on killed it just killed it and they uh, they did a second album and maybe a third and nobody gave a damn so that was just the worst possible thing but If Wikipedia is to be believed on the same day, February 29th, Robert Plant put out his new solo album, Now and Zen, which is the one where he sort of openly embraced his Led Zeppelin past for the first time. Because he had done three or four, three solo albums up to that point. No reference to Led Zeppelin. He didn't play Led Zeppelin songs in his tours. Nothing like that the new album now in zen not only used led zeppelin song samples in one track that became one of the big singles off of it but when he toured he did four or five led zeppelin tunes in his show and that was like a huge huge surprise because he had really shied away from being sort of anchored down to his legacy
0: i remember mm-hmm. when that record came out and I, I i at first i was i don't know i wasn't like so blown away but then i i it grew on me and i really appreciated, yeah. it and i thought it was real. i really got into it after a while
1: it's my favorite of his solo albums yeah i love it i think it's fantastic it's a little overproduced it's kind of got a sheen to it that it doesn't need to have but i think the material is
2: excellent going back to what you were saying about kingdom come alan mm. uh, i think it's interesting that 30 years later we would have the exact same thing happen again with greta van fleet right you right know? and that was i think they showed up about 2017 2018 so it was literally about 30 years after this
1: yeah that's right that is interesting
3: i have the church and starfish oh yeah hey. oh which yeah, which i know steph loves too
0: yes kind of do
3: <laughs> um, Kinda, just a little bit. Yeah, um, it was funny because you know I remember we were all bowled over because it came out on Arista, and we never got records from Arista that we could actually play on the radio. It was always terrible unless it was the rhythmics. But Starfish is fantastic. I mean, it still holds up. Reptile, those guitar, those guitar riffs on Reptile are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think Reptile is a better song than Under the Milky Way, but Under the Milky Way is the one that sort of that was a got big like one, yeah radio written all over it. It's a really interesting album in terms of the songs that are written the track order. I, I don't know stuff was the heroin addiction during or after this?
0: Oh, gosh, I don't even I don't know. Because
3: If it was, it's one of the best records ever made on heroin. Yeah. And I mean that nicely. It was probably um, after
1: because they didn't have enough money to afford heroin until after Milky Way. Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, I think it's like they're album. I mean, they put out a ton of records before this, but this is the one where they sort of just went for it, right? Yeah. And it's really, really solid. And It's what 35 years later and it still sounds like it came out this there's such
0: beautiful guitar work on that album marty's yeah Yeah. really great yeah it's just it's a one it is really great
1: yeah my previous band hyperdrive which is like 10 15 whatever years ago used to play milky way Mm -hmm. we played a very different arrangement of it we really changed the arrangement of it a lot but oh my gosh i loved playing it so much that's cool all right march
0: yeah March, I have a. I just I want to give a sort of a shout out to the Pixies for for their Heck debut. Heck yeah, hell mm-hmm. yes. I mean, what a debut album, right, Surfer Rosa? Right. Yeah, and also on such a cool label, Four AD. I mean, Four AD was so dope at this time. <laughs> it really was. Steve Albini produced this album. Gigantic was a single, and it was it it, it just wow. This was like a, a real. New sound. Yeah. I think this was a new sound.
1: I Well, I, I kind, a new of, sound. I kind yeah. of agree with that. I think it has definite throwbacks to early punk. You know, yes. they sort of have yes. that punk attitude and they have that punk. Like we don't give a shit about learning how to play guitars and how to write songs and stuff. We just do what we do. But th- what I think is interesting is that there are sort of interesting, um, arrangement choices. And, and the, the songwriting I think is really good. They just Lyrics. make it sound like they, they don't care about that stuff, even though they clearly right. do, you know? Yes. And I think yes. it's such yes. a neat album
0: because black Francis is a, such a good songwriter. He's mm-hmm. so, um, he's a really interesting lyricist. And I think that the, the, um, styles of like, you know, uh, ki- I just wanted to say Kelly Deal, but it's Kim Deal, <laughs> Kim. Um, and just the way they all worked together was pretty cool.
3: Yeah. The other interesting thing that this record did is because it's on 4AD, it really sort of revolutionized artwork for mm. albums, too. I mean, they sort of had this like way of doing their art that even on the singles and subsequent albums, that was different than everybody else. So you knew, even if you never heard a note, what there was a Pixies record. Yeah. And I love how they took who's and put them together with the beach boys and the oh, monkeys that's an and sort of person. made this like really interesting sound. Cause, and it's all over the place. I know, I know we kind of talked about this, but there's like the stuff that's really slow, it's slow and kind of got this like head bopping thing. And then there's the really aggro stuff on it. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's not a record you could put your finger on, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah. I somehow missed the pixies train. When it left the station, it was, it was years later before I even heard the name, the pixies. And when I did, I was like, how did I not come across this at the time? Because as I said, I was working at a record store at the time and I saw everything and I don't know how I did not come across the pixies. So, but once I discovered them, I was like, dude. And then years later in 2000, I think it was Bowie covered. One of these songs, Cactus, great, great cover. Yeah. And then they were, of course, on his 50th birthday concert that he did at Madison Square Garden, which I hope that they release on DVD at some point because that was a phenomenal show. But yeah, so Pixies, definitely. Also in March uh, was Talking Heads with Naked, which has my, well, maybe not my, but one of my absolute favorite Talking Heads songs, Nothing But Flowers.
3: Yeah, it's great.
1: I love that song so much. I think it's one of the cleverest lyrics that he
3: ever wrote. Yeah, it's you listen to that and it's such a shame they broke up because they really were just kind of in a different head space on that record that really could have been interesting had they continued on. Yeah, but yeah, it's pretty great. What else for March? Um, So I have two records from two guys that left bands. We'll take the good and then the weird. Um, So first is uh, Peter Murphy's Love Hysteria which oh, yeah. you know he, he left Bauhaus and he did Dolly's car and he put out a solo record ahead of time and some stuff, but love hysteria really took off. Uh, part of it too, is that, you know, you kind of had some of that goth radio stuff, goth music stuff was taking off on radio over here a little bit. Also 120 minutes helped him a lot, but, um, you've got all night long on there, which really takes off a lot. And then you've got some other things on there too that are, that, um, I'm blanking on all of the singles now from it, but it really sort of was an album that built up to the commercial success. We got later with cuts you up and some of the other stuff. It really, uh, but it's really an artist that kind of made a solo record that he wanted to make. And it, it flows really well as an album. The writing's interesting and it's, um, it's dark, but it's not like too dark. It's very shadowy. And then I will say that, um, despite what we think about said person now, first two Morsi solo singles, Suedehead and Every Day is Like Sunday, were fantastic. After that, I'm not sure what the hell happened, (laughs) but um, Viva Hate is an album that's got a lot of great singles on it with a lot of self-indulgence and a lot of um, stuff on there that's like there's some interesting bits and pieces on it. I don't know if you look at it and go, wow, this is a great record, but the B-sides on that are great because you've got Hairdresser on fire. Yeah, Um, that's right which is still the, just, you just say that it's yeah, just fantastic. Know. <laughs> right? Um, but like suede head, the video was on 120 minutes and it broke into regular rotation for about a week and they were playing that in clubs. I remember going to a club and they put on suede head and like, you know, and then every day is like Sunday was just so depressingly beautiful. He finally really made melancholy work. Let's move into April. And I want to, I want to
1: kick this one off. Um, there are four albums that came out. On April 5th. It's from four black artists of very completely different styles. And all of them were either already or were just becoming or were about to become huge stars. So I want to talk about those four really quickly. The first one is DJ Jazzy Jeff and The Fresh Prince. The album was called This is their second album. He's the DJ, I'm the rapper. And the big hit on that was, parents just don't understand, but they also had nightmare on my street, which was one of the themes for the upcoming Freddy Krueger movie. This was the first double album ever in hip hop. And it went like triple platinum or some nonsense. I mean, it was enormous. Other than that, we had Ziggy Marley with conscious party. The first single off of it was tomorrow people i loved that song so much and i played that i love it and i played that album at the record store all the time and it's such a good album it's a great album after that is sade with their third album stronger than pride and i say they because sade is the name of the band Sade, Adu is their singer, but Sade is the name of the band stronger than pride, a fantastic album. And the thing that I love about Sade so much is that they had very consistent chart success in America without ever. Compromising their sound without ever chasing a trend without ever, you know, doing what's popular in America at that time, they just did their thing and never swayed from it and they always were successful and i love it but i think the big one the most important one from that day is the debut album by tracy chapman yep what a phenomenal record this record blew me away i was just floored by it and what's interesting is that you have this strong raw uncompromising social commentary you have it from a number of rap artists that are coming out this year and you get it from tracy chapman like a
0: folky kind of uh, it's this yeah.
1: uncompromising look at what inner city life is like and it's just unbelievably good and i mean there's there's moments of absolute poetry on this album yeah yeah
0: and her and, voice is just beautiful yeah
1: yeah mm-hmm. So,
3: that's how April starts out. I mean, where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah. Well. They took the success of Madness Our House and put all of the top 10, a uh, bunch of the top 10 Madness singles and put them all under one record called Madness. And they released it in America pretty much to capitalize on the success of Our House. And that sort of put Madness on the on the map over here, even though they didn't necessarily commercially take off, but that sort of got them on a lot of radars and really got them rooted Beyond their sort of core group of people that had heard of them already it's also uh, the month we got uh, our first sound of york right because the first sugar cubes record came out that's one of the main
0: ones i was going to talk that's huge that album is unbelievable life's too good well that's a debut also right that their debut album and they have so many good songs on that album Mm -hmm. birthday delicious demon motor crash dance so I saw her at the Ritz and it was basically it was like unlike anything I had ever seen this little fairy like person with this ferocious voice. I mean her voice could go from like a whisper to a growl in in an instant. You know, it was like a beautiful kind of explosion. I just I I think this yeah. was a spectacular debut.
3: And you didn't really know what to make of it because yeah. it's like iceland what is iceland where is iceland
0: and her lyrics are so her lyrics are just uh what's the right word i mean they're very esoteric they're <laughs> yes esoteric. <laughs> and a nice way to say it
3: they're just they're just it was it was pretty obvious pretty early on that she was kooky <laughs>
0: yeah
3: um kooky. but She's... that record's great i also um should mention too that uh that's the month that uh, erasure released the innocence which is their sort of big commercial breakthrough record um because you got a little respect and i think chains of love on that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they broke which was a pretty big deal at the time i i think you couldn't go anywhere that spring without hearing a little respect on the radio like in the stores or wherever everywhere you went you heard that for like two or three months in the summer
0: also in this month uh jane wheatland had her second album first yes
3: that was on my list too
1: oh
0: okay yeah rush hour i mean that was big for her it was like number nine on the Mm -hmm, billboard uh how
1: 100 Mm -hmm, right i love that album i still listen to it quite regularly i i think it's an amazing record great songwriting on it rush hour is definitely the best single she ever released Um, inside a dream is great oh yeah the end of love is so great, but my favorite song and it it kind of has this faux industrial sort of feel to it. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Donna Summers. I feel love where it's got this really frenetic track over sort of like a, a really clean and angelic vocal sort of minimalist. And that song of the factory.
2: Oh, oh, yeah.
1: God, I love that song so much. That whole album I I still is still on my top. I just love it.
3: Yeah, the only other thing I've got for April is the very first record by the primitives called Lovely. Uh, again, another great voice. Sort of that like British sort of like fuzz pop thing going on. You know, it's kind of like the wall of sound meets the Jesus and Mary Chain, but kind of prettier. But it's uh it's really good. Like Crash is still fantastic. Spacehead's great. It's, it's a really, really solid debut record.
2: I think I have one of my favorite records of all time in April, and that is Iron Maiden with Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, yeah, which maybe. to me was the culmination of what was effectively the second phase of Iron Maiden. Right, They did the first two albums with Paul Diano, and then the second phase begins with The Number of the Beast and runs really through to when Bruce leaves uh, after Fear of the Dark. But for me, this is... The real high point. It's such an interesting album. It's their foray into progressive metal. It starts off with that wonderful acoustic guitar on Moonchild. And then from there, it's just track after track of fantastic, fantastic progressive metal. And I think The Clairvoyant mm. is probably my favorite Iron Maiden track of all time. I, I wouldn't no, say it's my
1: favorite it? ever, but it is probably the strongest track
2: on that record. It's so yeah. great. It's just such an insanely strong record. Yeah. And uh, when they realized uh, Operation Mindcrime came out the same year, apparently they kind of looked each- at each other and went, we've just put out our best album, but shit, these guys have done a better job than us. <laughs> but We'll get back to that in, I think it's, uh, I think it's May. We'll get around to Queensryche.
0: But I just, I did want to mention Boogie Down Productions, BDP, because yeah, uh, yeah by all means necessary. This is one of the base I think this is pretty much like this, the first real politically conscious hip hop albums. Uh, it's like a, it's like a landmark kind of album. KRS-One talking about like drugs. AIDS violence you know just so basically things that were just trying to like that were threatening minority communities and they were just really they were on top of all this and I think it was just a, a really important debut album
1: All right Anthony it is time right.
2: for May. Let's talk about Operation Mindcrime because Queensryche came out with probably one of the most narrative progressive metal albums or possibly even progressive rock albums of all time. Mm -hmm. It's insane how cohesive the story on that album is. You can follow it all the way through. And on top of that, it's the background of some really fantastic tracks. And you listen to that album and That's the sound of a band firing on all cylinders, and Jeff Tate's voice, holy shit, that's a good album. I remember when that came out, and I was blown away by it too. I don't think I heard it probably until about 2002, maybe 2003, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, because I wasn't exactly going to find it at six months old. (laughs) Um, So, you, you know, probably when I was about 15 was the first time I heard it, and it even then it stood up you know to me at a time when new metal was all the rage and uh, the the generally the uh that genre had moved on Mm -hmm. this still blew my mind away and kind of still still does this day yeah I, i i can still listen to the whole thing from start to finish today and love every moment of it it's just it's such a good album that stands the test of time
1: yeah agreed and, and we've talked about Mindcrime before on previous episodes, but it is, I mean, just the high water mark of, of metal at this time, of concept album at this time. It is, there's just nothing else that really compares to it. And, you know, you talk about the cohesive storyline, but the songs still work individually. Oh, Which yeah. meant that you had a couple of singles that did really well, particularly at rock radio. Eyes of a Stranger and I Don't Believe in Love, because you don't need it adds to the storyline, but you don't have to have the storyline to understand the song.
2: You know, yeah, it's just phenomenal, yeah. a great piece of work. And Alan, you, you say we've talked about them before. We've talked about that album before, and we will talk about it again. In <laughs> you know, we episodes. will. <laughs> I do have another metal album from May that I wanted to talk about, and that was Judas Priest with Ram It Down. Oh, yes. Now, this is an interesting one because Judas Priest's previous album, Turbo, is widely disliked by a lot of Judas Priest fans. Yeah. The one that comes after Ram It Down is Painkiller, which I went viral for with my little snippet (laughs) You're up to like
0: 7.5K views, baby.
2: Insane. Fame at last. Um, <laughs> so, ram it down is is a weird one because it's kind of in the middle. You're starting to get that heavier edge you see with Painkiller. So, it, it starts out with Ram it Down, which is, you know, it, it it's really kind of a frantic song. Yeah. Um, but there there are moments in that album that feel a lot more like the previous album Turbo. And interestingly, they were originally meant to be one double album. So there was meant to be a more synthy side to what was going to be twin turbo, and a heavier side, and a lot of the heavier side ended up on Ram It Down. Yeah, and it's a mixed album. It's it's a long way from being my favorite Priest album, but it does have one of my favorite Priest tracks on it, and that's Blood Red Skies.
1: Oh yes, yes, I would say that, and the title track is an absolute pile driver of a song, and I love it. It's like a it's like a musical jackhammer in your yeah. head
2: it is man it is it's incredible it's only fades because the next album opens with painkiller which is even more of a musical jackhammer <laughs> exactly
1: and they've got their their cover of johnny be good too
2: which is a solid cover i was very surprised by that
1: and you know they've they chose really odd things to cover things that you wouldn't expect to find on a metal album they did the, you know the old fleetwood mac song and they did the uh yeah, the Green Manalishi with the two-prong crown. Yes. And Diamonds and Rust. Oh, and, the Jane Bayes song, yeah. And they they make them work as Judas Priest songs, and that's just incredible. Yep.
0: We had a very exciting uh, debut album from Melissa Etheridge this year, and I say we because I'm talking about Island Records. We released that, and I was working at Island at that point. Wow. the ex- I just remember working at the company that year and just uh, how much build up and excitement. And um, just we knew we had something, you know what I mean? It was very, uh, we were anticipating a great success with her. And and really, she totally delivered that first album is fantastic. Bring me some water like the way I do just great, great songs, great songwriting. And if you saw her live, you know, she had it all she she was such a power she is such a powerhouse of a performer. And it was just, it was a really special signing by Chris Blackwell. He, he nailed that one. It was, it was, it was great.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Well, I've got a Prince album. Ooh. Prince put out love sexy, which was the weirdest thing that he had done up to that point where (laughs) the album cover is him laying across a flower, totally naked. And you're like, why? and the he insisted that the album not be divided into tracks to the point where when it's released on cd it is one like 40 50 minute track there's no separation between songs so because he wanted it to be heard and to be experienced as one complete work he didn't want it to be thought of as individual songs and it's just a bizarre album uh, even for him and but good, you know, I think it's a great album. I think it's got some really interesting songs on it. It's just, it, he just made his audience kind of work to get to it, you know? And I don't think that was necessarily the best choice, but you know, Prince always had in mind exactly what he wanted to do, whether it was good for marketing or good for the audience or not. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: You also had another album that I think we both shared, which was living color.
1: Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, talk about oh, that. Oh, one. yeah.
0: I'm um, yeah, I just want I mean, that another amazing debut, um, right? Vivid. Yes. And the massive success of Cult of Personality that year. I mean, that Holy was cow. just everywhere, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: yeah. Great hard rocking, awesome band. I remember seeing them at Seabees, actually, I believe. And uh, yeah, they again, another powerhouse kind of album just Uh, Mm -hmm. just a great debut
1: yeah yeah absolutely it was a it was such a good album and it mixed so many different genres and we were you know we were talking about mtv and last week's episode and um, we were talking about the the whole thing about mtv not necessarily embracing black music living color came along and it was it was like they just salivated over it because they're it like, look, look, here's a hard rock album. We can still be a rock and roll station and we can say we play black artists. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. they just delivered it. Was everywhere. Yeah, exactly. It really was.
3: It was everywhere. It was. But also that opening riff is like still. Yeah. It's still
1: great. Yeah. 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 Um, but And that's really the only song that I mean, I think once the novelty wore off, they never really matched that success with any subsequent album or even e- either other releases, because there's some great stuff on this album. Glamour boys is fantastic. Open yes. letter to a landlord is another one of those tracks from 1988. That's great. That, that thing pop- is amazing. Exactly. Another one from 1988 that talks about social issues and, yep. and it's just in a different package and, but yep. it's so mm-hmm. good. So good.
0: Yeah, Th- this is another, um, Another um, hip-hop album, Run DMC's Tougher Than Leather, which is yeah. their fourth album. And, and this is just sort of showing how, you know, the different kind of, within the genre, but the different styles are out. I mean, you're talking about like BDP earlier in, in April, and then this comes out, and it's just a, it's a, you know, sort of, they do talk about political stuff. They do talk about... Things that are affecting their communities, but they're also they've gotten more element of fun. I feel like to them. So Run's house, Mary Mary. Oh yeah. Uh, you know they just have a more um, like just sort of a more upbeat kind of style. I love Run DMC and think they right. consistently put out good music.
1: And Mary Mary built around the the old monkeys hit. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Mary, why, why you bugging? Bug? Oh man, I love it so much. <laughs>
0: I know, and they had so this was a, this was a really good record.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I got a couple of hard rock ones that I want to throw out really quickly. Yeah. Cinderella Long Cold Winter, which was a, a kind of a, a departure from their sound from their first album. It. it it's you know they're kind of in that hair metal scene but i always felt like they really weren't because they were much more blues rock they were much more you know like a modern rolling stones than anything else and long cold winter is a really good album and i think it's a, a better album than their first one but i think bigger than that clearly bigger than that was the second album that van halen released with sammy hagar at the microphone and that is ou812 which I huge. absolutely love. Mine, all mine. The opening track is amazing. Um, when it's love was the big single. There's there was actually a couple of big singles because finish what you started also did extremely well at radio. Um, but AFU, naturally wired, is phenomenal. Um, everything about this album I absolutely love. I think it's I think it's the best Van Hagar album that they ever did. Such a great record.
0: I don't know. I mean, I did like a few of their songs, especially why. Can, what is it? Why can't it be love? Is that right?
1: Why can't this be love?
0: This be love. Thank you. Um, I did like that song a lot, but I just I could never get with a Hagar. I'm sorry. I really am. That's okay. You don't. <laughs> our friendship is intact.
1: <laughs> no, I love Van Hagar. I, I was all in on that stuff. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Shout out to our friend Ricky Bird. From Joan Jett and the Blackhearts band, because they had uh, Up Your Alley, came Mm -hmm. out on May 23rd, and it wasn't a a huge, huge hit, I don't think, for them, but it had some really fun, good songs on it, like I Hate Myself for, for Loving You, and so, shout out to Joan Jett.
1: One of my other mention. previous bands used to play that song. That oh, yeah. is a fun song to play. And if you, if you put it early in your set and your first couple of songs didn't get the attention that you wanted them <laughs> to, that song gets people on the floor, listening, singing along, and clapping. It's, yes, it's, it's a, a total crowd winner. Yeah. Soul Forge Podcast. It's a geeky look at love, life, fandom, mental health, pop culture, and so much more. If you're into learning about yourself and the universe, Soul Forge is your podcast. Each week, we have a surprising new topic, from stupid things we do for love to product reviews, and there's almost always a fun guest host. Like and subscribe to Soul Forge podcast today. All right, well, that wraps up the first half of our discussion of the albums of 1988. And if you want to listen to what we're talking about, Go check out our Spotify playlist where we cover every album that we talked about in this episode, one song per album, in the order in which we talked about it. And we'll be back next week with the second half of our discussion of The Music of 1988. So don't miss that. Until then, Stephanie, why don't you kick us off with where people can find you?
0: You can find me um, on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And I have a website, therearbirds.com. And uh, you can find me on Bandcamp under my name, Stephanie Seymour. And of course, on all these streaming platforms like Spotify
1: and stuff like that. All right, Anthony.
2: You can also find me on the Watches in the Fourth Dimension podcast, watching our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We are on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, um, and all of those other places wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on social media at, at watches 4 d on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or X, or whatever the fuck it's called this week. Right. Um, and you can also find me personally on Instagram at, at Englishman in ATL. Rob, how about you?
3: so you can find me on uh facebook or the twitter x planetary mess that is um also on post um under my name and uh you can find me on the radio on wednesday nights on kdhx 88.1 fm in st louis streaming at kdhx.org so you can listen to that on the archive stream whenever you want it's there for you to listen to whenever also i host a uh, show on louder than more radio on Monday nights from six to eight Greenwich Mean meantime. And then, um, that's one to three Eastern 12, to two central. Um, it's called antics. You can listen to that there. And I'm also on the weekend justice podcast for any coffee.com.
1: All right. And I've got a website that catches all of my nonsense in one place. And that is cosmic creative K O Z M I C creative.com. You can find my books, you can find my podcasts. So, we will be back soon. Hope you'll stick around with us. Uh, until then, take care, keep rocking on, and we'll see you soon.
0: This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping at the Tee Public store